It's going to be Luke chapter 8, 41 through 56. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus' power over all of creation, over the forces of nature, and also over the demonic realm. Today, we're going to see another spectacular display of his power with two examples, one with a woman and one with a young girl. We're going to see his power to make the ceremonially defiled or the unclean clean again and how this portion pertains to salvation. Verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. We saw before the synagogue. This was a picture of when the, the Babylonians came in 586 B.C. and they destroyed the temple, their big house of worship, the centrally located in Jerusalem. A lot of these synagogues sprang up as local houses of worship. Again, the temple was that elaborate structure with the sacrifices and the feasts. And, of course, that was rebuilt, but the, uh, the synagogue still remained in local communities. So this guy is a synagogue ruler. He's a respected man of the community. Synagogue ruler was more of a director of synagogue events, and he certainly would be chosen, among other things, because of his godliness. It's funny, even men of God know where to take their positions in a time of crisis, at the feet of Jesus. And I, I've been at his feet many a times. You know, Lord, refresh me. Lord, give me, help me with uh, these decisions. So wherever you go, whatever problems you're facing, you need to be at the feet of Jesus. Here we're introduced to a man named Jairus. His, man me, or his name means he enlightens or he will awaken. And this man gets a lesson in both. But how? Well, enlightened. He's enlightened to the true power of Jesus Christ. And also, he will awaken. Actually, meaning his name would mean God will awaken. Not only Jairus' daughter, but Jairus' understanding of who Jesus Christ is. He's awakened to both. And hopefully, some of you sitting here today, by the time we're done with the service, will be enlightened and awakened to who Jesus Christ is. Verse 43. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. So here Jesus is en route to this sick girl, but his attention and his plans are diverted. The irony in all this is that this woman has been suffering with this condition for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Now you watch your kids grow up, and when they become teens, you, you, you say, where did the time go? But... Twelve years is a long time for this woman to have to suffer with this condition. So what do we know about this uh, affliction? Well, many have speculated, because it's not very clear. Many have speculated that maybe it was a, a, a menstrual irregularity or some type of uterine problem. Who knows? It could have been a, maybe some type of running wound that never closed. Mark's gospel says that it was a fountain of blood. Well, she could have, been, she could have had hemophilia. But actually, hemophilia is mostly carried by women. It's very rare for women to actually have the affliction of, of hemophilia. So whatever the condition, especially if it was the former, it would make her ceremonial unclean because of the blood. Leviticus 15 in the Old Testament, 19 through 30, covers that. And there's actually a protocol for the menstrual cycle. Now, what does all that mean? All it means is that God was very particular about the handling of blood. And in Leviticus 17.11, it says, 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So blood is sacred. The life of the, of the animal, whether it be a human or an animal, is, is the life force is that blood. The Jews even had regulations concerning the draining the blood of an animal prior to consumption to satisfy Leviticus 17.10 and Leviticus 17.13. And the Jews still follow those practices today. All the blood has to be drained out of the animal. You're not supposed to eat blood. So certain contacts with blood was one of the ways that a person could be unclean. But what did it mean to be unclean or defiled? Well, God wanted the children of Israel to be holy. He wanted to be set apart unto him, separated unto him. He actually wanted to rule as a theocracy. But the children of Israel kept bugging him for a king like the other nations. So he gave them a king. And all the ramifications of a king and all the problems with that came with having a monarchy. So God wanted them to be set apart, his people. Not only a nation, but a, you know, a spiritual aspect to it. Spiritual fellowship. And a lot of that had to go through, it came through the feasts and the celebrations and the observances. But being defiled or unclean could result in a few things. Barring from the feasts barring from the priesthood, social isolation, and sometimes complete banishment from the community. Other ways to be defiled, incidentally, are contact with the dead, eating restricted fruit, foods, uh, contact with a leper, and for the priest, any type of physical defect. Now, all these have New Testament applications. Um, usually, they're types of sin. And in the case of the priest and the lamb, a type of Christ. Now, let me explain that. You might say, you know, it's funny, we look at the Bible and we read some things, especially in the Old Testament, we don't understand God. What's God saying here? This doesn't seem fair. In the case of the priest, uh, it was a a genealogy. You couldn't be a priest unless your father was a priest. It came from a particular line of of people. And the Bible said that if a priest had any type of physical defect, maybe a a bad leg or a blind in one eye or whatever it was, he could not serve in the priesthood. And we might say, say, that's terrible. That's like not fair to the handicapped. But when you understand the full implications of what God is saying here, it makes sense. See, Jesus fulfilled the role of the priest, okay? So Jesus came without defect. He came without sin in a different sense, spiritually. Jesus had no sin as that priest offering the sacrifice for our sins to God. Now, the lamb, the Bible also says, that animal that was sacrificed, he couldn't have a blemish either. They would comb through his, his uh, fur and look for a, a, a spot or, or some type of defect. And if the lamb had a defect, he couldn't be sacrificed. So he was ineligible. Now, Jesus also fulfilled the role of that lamb. Jesus was the priest giving the sacrifice to God. And Jesus also offered himself up as that sacrifice. And where does the blood come in? The blood is sacred. By the shedding of Jesus' blood, we're saved. We have remission of sins. Right. So it all makes sense. The cool thing is when you look at the Old Testament, it unlocks the keys. I'm sorry. If you look at the New Testament, it unlocks the keys to the Old Testament. To add insult to injury in this instance, this woman's condition made her poor. She spent everything she had on doctors who couldn't help. But we're going to see in a little while how this woman's poverty leads her to riches in Christ. And we often don't know what God's plan is at the time. But often through our um, trials in life and our afflictions, especially for unbelievers, we, we just say, all right, you know, okay, Lord, I've tried it all my way. Let me try it your way now. Kind of brings us to God, right? So this woman's poverty brings her to riches in Jesus. 
And in verse 44, we see that this is an amazing feat for this woman to pull off, to actually get to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment. Why? Well, first of all, the crowds were always thronging Jesus. You ever see those, uh, you know, watch the news and you see maybe a soccer tournament or uh, some type of event that's not regulated. And people, they, they throng each other. God forbid one person falls, that person gets trampled. How many times have you seen events where people have gotten trampled and killed because of the crowds? So Jesus was always squished because everybody wanted to see what was going on and people were pressing from the outside. So even if you were able-bodied, you couldn't, you couldn't really get to him. Remember the guy who had no use of his arms and his legs and his four friends, four guys, carried him to Jesus? Well, they couldn't get to him by natural means, so they had to go out around the side of the house and up to the roof, remove the tiles and remove or drop the friend down slowly, lower him so Jesus could heal him. That was the only way they could get this guy to Jesus. Two, the second reason why it was amazing for this woman is because a significant loss of blood would even make it more difficult for her to get to him physically. Um, I just want to digress for a little bit because the more I, and I love to put like a little biology in, in the services, because the more I study the human body, the more I'm amazed at how God is. You, you just can't help it. The more you see the intricacies of what he's created, the more we have to give credit to the creator. I want to digress. Blood in the encyclopedia. I hope I'm not making anybody squeamish with all this talk about blood today. You can put your fingers in your ears. I won't be offended. The encyclopedia says that it's circulating tissue composed of fluid plasma and cells. Red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. What are the main functions of blood? One, to supply nutrients. Oxygen and glucose. Glucose is the is the the bottom line uh, building block of carbohydrates. All carbohydrates are broken down, broken down, broken down by the body until they become blood glucose for energy. And also, uh, blood supplies nutrients and constitutional elements to tissues. If, if you, any of you have worked out, you get that pump. You know, your muscles start to grow. It's because when you lift weights, you're tearing the muscles, and the body reacts by sending the blood into there to t- put constitutional elements, amino acids and building blocks, back into the muscle tissue. So this is what blood does. And blood also removes waste products, carbon dioxide and lactic acid. It also enables cells to be transported between tissues and organs. Uh, and any problems would equal tissue dysfunction. Now, her condition would be characterized, thinking about everything that I just said, her condition would be characterized by fatigue, weakness, anemia, degeneration of body tissues, and a whole host of other problems. So this woman probably mustered up every last bit of energy and will to get to Jesus and touch him. And it's a very unusual way to be healed by touching his garment. But see, there's no formula to his healings. It happened in many different ways. Jesus healed remotely. He could say a word from Bethany and somebody in Jerusalem could be healed. He didn't have to be there. Uh, Sometimes he touched people directly. In the form of one of the blind men, he spit on the ground and mixed it with some dirt, made like a clay, and put it on the guy's eyes. Kind of gross, but I guess whatever works, you know, the guy was able to see. Um, another thing that he did was he just spoke, and people were healed. Kind of like during creation, how God spoke things into existence. And here we see it by having his garment touched. But there's no formula or ritual for Christian walk or for answered prayer. There's nothing we can look at in the Bible and say, I'm going to come up with a formula or a ritual and this is going to make my life good. That's not the picture. 
It's about a relationship with God. It's about your heart to his heart. And that's why the Bible doesn't have rituals and formulas. You can't figure out God's ways. And I also think about, you know, his walk, a Christian walk, answered prayer. I'm not a big fan of these trendy books, whether it be the prayer of Jabez or the purpose-driven life. I'm not a big fan because what happens is you get so engrossed in what these authors' interpretation of the Bible is if it's taking you away from your reading of the scripture, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. This, you know, you're not going to have some type of formula that's going to give you the keys to having a good Christian walk, right? I also think about certain rituals. Um, there's a lot of superstition and fetishism in organized religion. And look, you ever see, like, if you, if you buy a handkerchief, right, in the store, it's what, 75 cents maybe? I haven't bought a handkerchief in a while. But if you ever turn to some of these Christian channels and these guys do these weird things, they say, if you come and you buy the blessed handkerchief for $50, it could make your life a whole lot better. I mean, what's up with that? It's fetishism. It's a stinking handkerchief, you know? You blow your nose in it, you wipe sweat. Hopefully you don't do the same thing at the same time. But blessed handkerchief? I mean, come on. Even about saying prayers, people say, well, you have to say your prayers. People think, like even the Our Father, the Our Father is a model prayer. When you say the Our Father, there's meaning behind it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a a positional statement. Lord, (laughs) you're there, I'm here. I get the picture. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's judgment. That's when God makes everything right. You think his will is being done here now? Look around. Look on the news. Forget about it. Uh, but it's, it's a model prayer. It's how we're supposed to communicate with God. It's how we're supposed to have that relationship as we speak to each other. Um, you know, what about like even special water or supposed wood from the cross of Jesus? How do you know that came from the cross of Jesus? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that piece of wood has, has got to be long disintegrated by now. And it just becomes paganistic. With, like the paganisms, they had the amulets and the talismans. Um, and that's not what Christianity is all about. God is intelligent. If he made you and you're intelligent, think of how much more intelligent he is, right? Because sometimes we don't always use our intelligence. But I think about my dad, you know, my biological father. If I don't call him, if two days go by and I don't call him, he calls me and asks me what's wrong. And we don't have big, great theological conversations. It's like, hey, Joe, what are you doing? I'm at work. What are you doing? I'm watching TV. Okay. What's new? Oh, nothing since yesterday since you called me. Okay. And these are our conversations sometimes. But my dad just wants to know that I'm still there. I still love him. And keep the lines of communication open. And that's the way it is with God. We turn it into something that it's not supposed to be. So... It's important to understand with this healing of this woman's condition that it was immediate and efficacious. It's the same with our sin. It doesn't matter what we did prior to coming to the cross. Just like this woman, our condition, our bad condition of sin is completely remedied. It's completely healed. It's finished, like Jesus said on the cross. Verse 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng you and press you, and you say, who touched me? This seems like an odd question from the disciples' perspective. Remember, we said before, Jesus was always thronged, always squished, you know? Who touched you? I mean, 
but that was his question. And you know, it's funny because a lot of people today touch Jesus, but a lot of people aren't healed. People try out the Jesus thing. I'm going to try it out, you know, dabble in it. You don't try Jesus, though. Jesus isn't one of the items at the smorgasbord table. He's not a sampler that you could put on your cracker and try a little Jesus, you know? (laughs) Jesus is either Lord of all or he's none at all. You know, he's got to be Lord of everything or he doesn't want second place in your life. And I don't think this question was for the disciples. I really believe this question was for the woman. The one who reads minds, the one who could forgive sins, the one who did miracles surely knew who touched him. Verse 46, but Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. And again, I believe that Jesus was saying these things to draw this woman out by her own volition, not to point the finger at her and say, you, and then everybody separates, but to start to draw this woman out by her own volition. 47, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. It takes a little goading, but this woman comes out. She declares in front of everyone her condition, which could have been quite humiliating, and how Jesus was completely able to correct it. Now, again, why did he do this? Was it to embarrass her? Why publicly? I believe that he wanted to heal her spiritually as well as physically. And that public confession was important. And she confessed what happened, and out of her own mouth, she was able to say what happened. And we do a lot of things publicly, too. I I really believe that it's really hard, if you've been a Christian for years, to be a closet Christian. It really is hard. Because if you really love Jesus that much, and you're so thankful for what he's done for you, it's going to be hard for you to keep that to yourself, you know? Um, Public confession is good. Even when we do baptisms, we're making a... It, when we go into the water, I mean, you don't... We're going to do the baptism in July. Those of you who haven't been baptized, when you come out of the water, you know, the heavens aren't going to open and you're going to feel a tingling sensation. Baptism is a public confession of what your inward heart is. You're saying, I'm going into the water, I'm going under the water. I'm dying to my old self. Like Jesus was, was, was crucified and... And, and, you know, he had to be resurrected. You're coming up out of that water. You're leaving the old self behind. And you're coming up out of, with newness of life, to emulate Jesus, right? And to, to tell the world about what you're doing. Same thing with communion. You know, you, you take, you partake of the bread, you drink the cup, and it's a public thing that we do in front of other believers to show the fellowship with each other. But while we're fellowshipping, the memorization of what Jesus did for us. It's a public uh, thing. And many received only physical healing from Jesus in those days, but rejecting the way to salvation. So many people did get healed. You know, the ten lepers. Remember, only one came back? Where was the, where was the gratitude? What happened to the other nine guys? Maybe they started a new job. Maybe they got married. Maybe they, I don't know. They could have done anything. Went around giving their testimony. But only one came back to Jesus. Okay? Uh, so a lot of people were healed publicly, but... I'm sure a lot of them also rejected the way to salvation. A lot of them were there for a free meal. The Bible tells us. It, didn't say, it doesn't say particularly for a free meal, but it says that they came and they were only looking for the food, only looking for the miracles, and didn't want to hear the spiritual aspect of it. So, that, And that's a tragic thing. There was no sense in this woman having all that suffering removed and then going her own way only for 30 or 40 years later to die in her sins and go to hell. 
So Jesus was trying to, to help from her own words see where her heart was with him. And her poverty as a result of this affliction brought her to the cross to experience eternal riches. It's good when you're brought to your knees and you're brought to the cross. Some of us, we are praying for uh, unsaved loved ones, friends, co-workers, and then we see them go through really hard times and our hearts really go out to them. But sometimes that is a good way to bring them to the cross, to finally realize their own mortality before it's too late and, and just want to seek that, seek God, right? So it's a good place sometimes for whether it's poverty or affliction to bring you to the foot of the cross, especially if you're not a believer. A few points here. Her condition is a picture or a type of sin. It weakens you and will eventually kill you if it's untreated. And the worst type of death is the second death, the spiritual death. Two, the doctor's inability to heal was a picture of man's solution to sin. There is none. Man has no solution to sin. The doctors tried and tried and made matters worse, and they also made her poor. Not only did her condition get worse, but she had poverty, Mark's Gospel records. And this reminds me of religion. Men will do all types of things, all these organizations. There's hundreds, probably thousands of religions, many cults that spring up. And men will do all these things to earn salvation. But you know what? They make the condition worse because they give people a false sense of security. That makes the condition worse. It solidifies damnation if it's not done God's way. And people sometimes will say to me, well, that's narrow-minded. Well, I actually follow the narrow road, so I guess I am narrow-minded. But if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. You know, who am I to argue with God? I'm the clay, he's the potter. If this is the way to salvation, then that's the way I'm going to follow. You can argue and kick and scream all you want, but I'm going to follow God's way. You know, I'm going I'm to fall in line with what he says. Verse 48. And he, Jesus, said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is a picture of the cross. Her faith in Jesus to completely fix the problem. 49. Now, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. While Jesus was diverted from Jairus, um, you know, from Jairus' daughter to the woman with the blood, in the meantime, Jairus' daughter dies. Doesn't seem fair. Why didn't Jesus triage? Why didn't he prioritize? Why didn't he heal remotely like he's done before? Does it sound familiar? Waiting, waiting, and waiting on God. And it seems like he's delayed. But Lord, this is an emergency situation. I need an answer quickly. You know, I need, <laughs> I need an answer to prayer by next week. Have you ever been there? Apparently a lot of you have. I have. It's almost like you want to cover your eyes and make an eeny, meeny, miny, moe decision. Just get it over with. But sometimes God allows us to wait for what seems to be an eternity. Why? Well, a few things. One, to learn patience. Patience truly is a virtue. It's what God desires for us. And by our own admission, it's what a lot of us lack the most, patience. I've seen the godliest people get frustrated and say, I need to learn patience. It's probably the biggest challenge in our lives as Christians. Two, sometimes he just wants us to make a godly decision. The brain is an amazing piece of machinery. With all the supercomputers in the world, it, they can't even work in a fraction of the time that the human brain works. God's not going to do everything for us. Proverbs 27:12 says that the wise man sees danger and he prepares for it. The fool does nothing and he's punished for it. So the wise man is somebody who has a plan 
who, who sees something going on and, and wants to do something about it. So, talking about Christian uh, cliches, I've spoken about that before. One of, one of the cliches people have is they'll say, I'll pray about it, about everything, to the point where it's a way for people to, to get people off your back so that you don't have to do something. It's like somebody falls down and breaks their arm. We should help this person up. I'll pray about that. No, that's not the time to pray. It's a time to act. And three, sometimes God allows us to strengthen our spiritual legs. In my mind, I think about, uh, and most of you or pretty much all of you have had kids know at the toddler stage, it's time for the baby to walk. And you, you, you get the baby upright and you, you want them to start going and they're so used to your hand but you kind of put them somewhere and then move back from the living room and you want to watch them take those steps. They're all wobbly but they have to strengthen those. They look like Frankenstein, right? The way they move. It's, you want to strengthen those chubby, little spirit, those chubby little legs and sometimes God takes a step back so that we can strengthen our spiritual legs. And four, just learn to trust him. It's hard to appreciate light if you've never known darkness. You don't really appreciate the goodness of light unless you've ever been in darkness. When you're in darkness and, and you know, the Lord is, is temporarily, it seems that he's not there. He always is there. But that's when you really appreciate God the most. When you come out of those dark times and then you, you, you have that sweet fellowship with God again, you appreciate it that much more. Verse 50. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. Do not be afraid. Only believe. We have to tell ourselves that sometimes. Do you know that fear is the opposite of faith? If you're in fear, look up. Do not be afraid. Only believe. I have a situation in my home. Uh, let's see. It was built about 35 years ago. I'd like to really meet the architect because there's the roadway right in front of my house, about 60 feet from the front of my house. And my house was built about, if you took a transit, a level and looked, my house is built about eight or nine feet below the level of the street. And now I have this driveway that comes in and funnels all the water towards my house. Isn't that great? <laughs> so two days ago, I have a drain, but, you know, it, it goes underground. But when the rain is real heavy, it just comes so fast, it starts to come in the garage. And I'm at work, and my wife is calling me. She's like, Joe, I have bad news for you. I hate to hear that. Because <laughs> I hear the rain, and when she says, I have bad news, I just make the connection. So where's the water line, honey? She's like, well, it's coming in the garage and it's getting closer because there's a, the downstairs is connected to the garage and the door is not going to stop the water from coming up over. And, you know, she'd call me back every 15 minutes and say, it's getting higher, it's getting higher. <laughs> well, thank, I, we were praying. She was praying and I was praying on my end, not saying, hey, let's pray, but we both prayed separately and it was real close. And in my mind, I'm already thinking, okay, I have to tear up the carpets, move everything to the other room you know, uh, dry everything out. In my mind, I'm already ahead of the game. But do not be afraid, just believe. It was, it, that was when the storm started. And all of a sudden, the drain just kicked in and started pulling that water back. And whew. I mean, that was a little trial. But it was, certainly would have been aggravated if the whole house was flooded on the inside. Do not be afraid, only believe. Perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4.18 there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And this love in the Greek is that agape love, that divine, perfect love. There's, 
we see love, love, love in the English, but in the Greek, uh, it's in a lot of parts in the Greek language, it's more, you know, it's, it's, they, they, it's separated into, into kind of like levels. The four loves are eros, where we get erotic, the sexual love, storgi, which is a family love, the phileo love, which is like a brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and the agape love, which is that highest, most perfect love. That's the, the love that God shows to us, that agape love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Verse 51. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. So this has been called the inner circle of Jesus, James, John, and Peter. James, John, and Peter were the only ones at the Mount of Transfiguration. James, John, and Peter were the only ones in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus went further to pray. Um, why? Well, if you read the scripture, you'll find that Jesus had layers of disciples. He had the inner circle, he had the three, and then he had the twelve, which the three were encompassed in. And then in the next chapter of Luke, we'll see that he had seventy that he sent out two by two. And in John's gospel, it alludes to the possibility that there may have been over a hundred. So there was kind of like layers of, of disciples. But Jesus, taking the form of a man, taking the form of a bondservant, God incarnate, right? God in human flesh, was confined to one body and he could only do so much. And as the numbers of men got smaller, more attention could be given to them. And I don't believe that God plays favorites. Do I know the exact reason why these three were, you know, at these special events? I can't say for sure. But it, it is a, it perhaps it was a possibility that these three really showed more of a devotion for God's work. Now, it doesn't mean that they were better Christians than the other ones. As a matter of fact, if you see, Peter kept putting his foot in his mouth. Every time he said something, he'd have to take it back. But it's a possibility they wanted to, they were looking to show more devotion to God's work. And he, he brought the three with him. And I think about that in ministry. When it comes to choosing a, a pastor or, or choosing an elder and praying about it and laying hands and the Lord showing me, I'm going to always choose from somebody who's been serving. Because I don't think that you can get the full picture of Christianity without being a servant. Because Jesus came not to rule over, but to serve. So in order for us to really understand what it means to be a Christian, we have to serve other people. Jesus also permitted very few to enter the house. Okay, um, It was very discreet. This is a sensitive issue. And I, I always like to ask you to, in your mind as I'm going through the story, imagine what's going on. 12-year-old girl. Think about a 12-year-old girl. She's, she's died. This family has incredible grief. And Jesus is discreet. He only allows so many people to go in with him. Right? It wasn't a circus act to glorify himself. He was sensitive to the family's emotion. And these are certainly big-time lessons for ministry. In ministry, we need to learn sensitivity and humility. No matter how many times we see a marriage falling apart, no matter how many times we see a person in sin, it's, it's something that we always have to be mindful of, humility and discreetness. Verse 52. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. Now, we also read that uh, in the other Gospels, they had this unusual custom of professional wailing people. Uh, actually, it doesn't say that, but it says that the wailing people were there. And it was a way of uh, showing a lot of mournfulness and respect for the family. And they would hire people to actually come. Maybe they didn't even know the person. And they would cry and they would wail and they would make a lot of noise. That's unusual, but that's their custom. Um, the body of deceased also had to be buried the same day after 
washing it and preparing it with spices and herbs. So these were their customs. Well, what was Jesus saying? She's just asleep. That's ridiculous. From everyone else's perspective, it was obvious the girl was dead. And him being a rabbi should know the difference between life and death. His ways are not always our ways. And his ways, for the most part, aren't our ways, God's ways. And sometimes it's hard for him to under, it's hard for us to understand him. There was a book that was written. I should have done a little bit more research. Uh, somebody wrote a book that said, when God doesn't seem to make sense or when God doesn't make sense, and it helps us to understand things that happen in our lives and how we try to get a little bit closer to God's ways. Um, God was not bound by the laws he set up for us. You know, God set up the laws of gravity and physics and all that, but he is outside of those laws. He's not bound by them. So it wouldn't be hard for him to raise somebody from the dead. And a lot of times we don't see from our perspective what's going on at the time, but months later or years later we'll look back and say, oh, that's why God did that. That's why he allowed that. And sometimes, even in this whole lifetime, we won't understand. Maybe not until the afterlife. Verse 53, it says, And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. They knew that she was dead. You know what? Sarah also laughed when informed that she would finally have a son as an elderly woman, that she would get pregnant. She laughed. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah's son, Isaac, his name means laughter. And also, be careful not to scoff, not to laugh, not to mock at what God is doing just because you don't understand it. Psalm 1 says, Psalm 1 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Just believe. Just sit back and pray and see what God's going to do. Our attitude? What's our attitude? Well, Unbelief is one of the, the worst offenses to God. Hebrews 11.6 says, says that we can't even begin to please God without faith. We could do good works and all these things, but Hebrews 11.6 says without faith, it is impossible to please God. No matter what you try to do, you have to believe him. You have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 54. But he put them all out took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Now, he put them all out. It's unclear exactly what happened here. Did some rubberneckers come, you know, squeeze their way back in to see what was going on, and he threw them out again? I don't know. Uh, did he make everyone, including the, the disciples and the parents, leave? It's, it's not real clear. Not all the manuscripts actually have this phrase that he put them all out. Did he do it alone because people would stumble seeing a rabbi touch somebody who was dead? It would have made him unclean. We spoke about that before. He would have been ceremonially defiled. As a man, his ministry would have been ruined had he been seen purposefully defiling himself with a dead person. However, as God, he was able to make the unclean clean again. Instead of bad flowing to him, the uncleanness defiling him as a rabbi, as a religious teacher... Uh, his good flowed to her. He brought the power of God to her and brought, her, brought life again. So in, in, in the bottom line, the equation was he wasn't unclean. He didn't make himself unclean. And that's, that's an equation. You know, you know, bad flowing to him, no, but good flowing to her. That, does that equation work that way in our lives? Do you have affect the company that you keep in a good way? Or does their bad behavior affect you? It's good. That's the same equation that can work in our lives. 
Um, the important question is because if it's the latter and you're not strong enough and you allow bad people's behavior to affect you, you need to cut the ties with those people because they're bringing you down spiritually in your walk. I've seen Christians take a turn for the worse, hanging out with ungodly people. And it's a slow process. One day you wake up and you're in a really bad place as a Christian. And you're like, how did I get so far from the Lord? He didn't move. You moved. You moved away from him. But I've also seen Christians have a great effect on ungodly people as their light shined onto them. You know, you could be a strong walking Christian and and get uh, caught up with people who just like to gossip. Every time they're around you, they talk, 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 talk. Now, you can do one or two things with that. You could either correct them and hopefully they change or you can start doing what they do. You can start emulating with them. You see the equation, how it works? And only God knows, only you and your Lord knows the strength that you have. Cut the ties with those people that are bringing you down spiritually. Let your light shine to them. Have You have an effect on them. Verse 55. It says, Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. The spirit returned to her. The only part of us that dies when we die is our physical flesh. The spirit either goes with God or it goes separation from God for eternity. So Jesus was able, the spirit lives forever. Jesus was able to call the spirit back into the girl and revive her. Whatever her sickness was, as a bonus, he also healed her sickness. She could carry on a normal life again. And this also supports the, the deity of Christ. I don't know anyone who can do that. Who can bring the spirit? Look at Lazarus. Who can bring the spirit back? Lazarus was dead four days. And his sister said, by now there's a stink. It's going to smell really bad. And Jesus was able to put the spirit back into Lazarus, bring him back to life, and bring his life, his body back to normal again. Verse 56. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, why not tell? Why not tell people about the great things that were done? Well, first of all, his presentation as Messiah the King was not going to happen until Luke, 9, uh, Luke chapter 19. And that's actually chronologically a few more months from what's happening here. It wasn't the exact time to present himself as the Messiah. Daniel chapter 9 has the exact day that Jesus, you know, from the Jews going back to rebuild to Messiah the King in Daniel chapter 9 was to the exact day that he was supposed to present himself as the Messiah, and this was not the time. And two, the focus was not supposed to be on the miracles. They were never supposed to be on the miracles. They were supposed to be on the word of God. Yes, Jesus did miracles. Yes, Jesus had compassion on people. He loved them. But the focus was supposed to be on the eternal kingdom, not the here and now, not the miracles. And I see that too, the message of salvation. Unfortunately, in today's society, there's a great falling away, the apostasis, you know. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of even denominations today don't really focus so much on the Word of God anymore, everything but the Word of God. Maybe signs and wonders, maybe current events, maybe everything but what they're supposed to focus on, the Bible. So he makes the unclean clean. He did with this woman of no reputation and a little girl who had died. And he also does it for us. I want to read something to you. We're all in the same boat here. Uh, This is a Daily Bread uh, uh, article. It says, Wounded for Me. I just want to read part of it. It's like morning devotionals that I do. It says, A man who was deeply troubled by his sins was having a vivid dream in which he saw Jesus being savagely whipped by a soldier. As the cruel scourge came down upon Christ's back, the onlooker shuddered. For the terrible cords left ugly, gaping wounds upon his bleeding, swollen body. 
When the one wielding the lash raised his arm to strike the Lord again, the man rushed forward to stop him. As he did, the soldier turned, and the dreamer was startled to see his own face. It's kind of a freaky dream, isn't it? (laughs) But the Bible says, again, that's us. We put Jesus in that position. Because of our sin, Jesus had to go to the cross. If we were all sinless, Jesus could have come out and hung hung out with us for eternity. He wouldn't have had to die for our sins. But the fact is, we all sin. You know, and the soul that sinneth dies, the Bible says. And Jesus had to come to remedy that. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Yes, we put Jesus on the cross. And whether that's a popular statement or not, it's still the truth. We live in a society where everyone, including Christians, doesn't want to hear the truth about themselves. But let God be true and every man a liar. As Jesus gave both ladies their lives back, he did the same for us 2,000 years ago. For the unbeliever... All that's left now for the unbeliever is for you to receive the free gift. The Lord holds it out in his hands. It's a precious gift. All you have to do is take it. And for the believer, he gave you the ability to put childish things away and walk in the spirit. Message of salvation. Unfortunately, in today's society, there's a great falling away. The